Real pleasure to be with you. I'm here with my wife, Amanda, this morning, and look forward to uh, diving into God's Word with you. I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 1, so if you turn there and, and you can keep Psalm 1 open uh, for the time of the, of the sermon, as I'll work through the text. Let me read the psalm, and then let me pray, and then I'll begin. This is Psalm 1, beginning at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in abundance as your word is preached, that we would see our sin and our need of grace, which is found only in Jesus Christ. Uh, Would you help me as I preach? Would you help us all as we hear and as we come together in agreement on your word? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the first of the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is divided into five books. And as a whole, it's understood that they parallel the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. As you read through the books within the Psalter, you find that each book ends with praise to the Lord. And that is what the Psalms means in Hebrew. It means praises. And so we have in the Psalms this praise book, this hymn book, this prayer book for God's people with the goal of delighting in the Lord. That is worship to delight in the Lord. The Psalms addresses all of life, and I'm sure that many of you here have dipped into the Psalms at different times of your life. And, and so it addresses the whole person to the extent that the whole man or woman praises God with a variety and a complexity. And so Psalm 150, the, the last of the Psalms, ends like this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So you see there is a a totality of praise, a completeness of the psalmist's happiness in God. Now it seems to me that the happiness of man is the great interest of man, isn't it? Ever since paradise was lost in Eden and Eve took the forbidden fruit because she thought it would bring her greater happiness, the world has been looking for happiness because it's unhappy. Every advertising ploy promises happiness, doesn't it? From food to sporting fame, from selling clothes to selling sex, from weight loss to weight lifting, the promise is this. This will make you happy if you can just get it. Everyone's looking for happiness. But there's nothing new under the sun, is there? People want to be happy in a fallen world. And Solomon who had more stuff and comfort than any of us will ever have, says in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
To find lasting happiness is hopeless. That's the discovery of the world. That's why it's constantly looking for happiness. And some of the unhappiest people are the ones that you think have the best circumstances. The movie stars, the athletes, they have these massive highs, but when they come down from them, they have a massive hole. And they're so unhappy. According to Time Magazine's May 2018 edition, the number of kids hospitalized for thinking about or attempting suicide has doubled in less than a decade. According to a study published in Pediatrics Journal, people are unhappy with their sexuality, their finances, their jobs, their relationships. And many of those who say they are happy don't have true happiness because the things that they place their happiness in, they can all be taken away. They have no happiness beyond the things of this life. And yet Ecclesiastes says, God put eternity into a man's heart. And so what you've got is the world looking for eternal value in temporal things. And you know what? It's left frustrated. It's left hopeless. It's left unhappy. And so as the, this life begins to wane, if all you have is this life, you have no solid joy. You say with the world, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Psalm 1 begins with this phrase, blessed is the man. And so here is hope, friends, because it is possible to be happy, to be blessed in this world. But only if you follow God's prescription for happiness. That is to realize that true happiness is not found in our circumstances but in our relationship to God and who we are in him. True happiness is not found in our circumstances, but in our relationship to God and who we are in him. That's the conclusion of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Only then can we begin to experience true happiness and true harmony in all of our relationships. And so here we enter the book of Psalms with a wisdom psalm. And we see the marks of the happy or the blessed man. And so I have four marks for us to see for the happy man. One, his separation. Two, his devotion. Three, his irrigation and fruition. And four, his destination. The first thing to see is his separation, his separation. Let's look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We see here what the happy man has separated from, what he is not. See, God's prescription for true happiness and his description of the happy man begins with a negative, a not The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Stands with sinners, sits with scoffers. Not. True happiness, true blessedness is found not in the things of the world. You need to look elsewhere, not there. The blessed man does not walk, stand, sit. Why the not? Why the not? It's interesting, isn't it? 
popular education and, and popular psychology says that people don't need to hear negatives. They get enough negatives out there. They don't need to hear negatives. But it isn't that way with the Bible. The psalmist says the way to be happy is to begin with a not. And most of the Ten Commandments say do not. Now, no isn't the only thing in the Bible. But God says this, if you want to come into my presence, there are some things you cannot bring with you. Some things you cannot do. Because failure to heed one do not in Eden led to separation from me and all the maladies in the world today. It's why you are unhappy. It's what God says. Why the not? Why the not? Because the Bible is realistic. It doesn't believe in the goodness of man. Everybody is sinful. When we get rid of all the sinners in the world, we can get rid of all the negatives in the Bible. Everybody is going in the wrong direction to start with, you see. And there's no hope of happiness for anyone unless they realize they are wrong about everything. So the Bible, you see, the Bible doesn't affirm you. It diagnoses you. And God says in his word, if you want to be truly happy, according to my prescription, then realize you're going wrong and stop. What is it that God says to Noah in the book of Genesis? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 8.21. That's God's diagnosis of man, not mine. That's God's words. The Apostle Paul says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everyone in here. Why the not? Because people judge the ingredients for happiness by what they see in the world, not what they read in God's word. That's why God says, no, not like them, not like them. There needs to be a consistent no to certain things in your life if you want happiness. We need biblical boundaries. Just as all children, and there are children here today, just as all children need boundaries lest they go astray and hurt themselves or become a nuisance to other people. And true worship can't be experienced if I'm bringing baggage in that's not consistent with God's way for worship. God's boundaries, God's no's give true freedom and true joy. Because like children who know their boundaries, God's children then feel safe. You feel safe. You, you, you feel free to do what your father permits because you know where the boundaries are. Now let's look at exactly what the true happy or blessed man does not do, what he separates from. The happy man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, he doesn't listen to the rhetoric of the world. You know, it's subtly deceptive, isn't it? How much the church is influenced by the advice of the world. But, it, but it's not just the rhetoric, it's the aims. It's the principles of the wicked world. It's the principles of those who aren't Christians. The world... Trust in its own intelligence, its own power, and not God's power and God's wisdom. Worldly knowledge is derivative, it's contingent, it's not original. God is the only original one. But friends, you see, such is the, is the pull, 
Such is the pull of the, of the wicked and, 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 and the deceitful schemes of Satan and the remaining sin in our own hearts. Such is that pull that we are in danger of beginning to walk in the counsel of the wicked if we're not vigilant here. You listen enough to it and then you begin to be desensitized to its wickedness and you begin to walk with the idea Walking in the counsel of the wicked, you see, begins in the imagination. But the happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Also, the happy man does not stand in the way of sinners, see there. Their way of sinful living, their sinful lifestyle. What you could not stand the thought of, you now stand the thought of and begin to travel on its way in the way of sinners. And it's a broad way. It's, a, it's an easy road. There's lots of fellow travelers on that road. It's a popular road, but it's the way that leads to destruction. And yet the happy man is not so. He, he's a friend to sinners, but he's not intimate with sinners such that their way is his way. He is not standing in the way of sinners. Also, the happy man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. True happiness is found in not sitting in the seat of scoffers. The scoffers, the God mockers, these are the ones who are so indifferent to God that they hate divine things. They're mockers of creation and marriage and morality and what is decent and honorable in the eyes of God. They call good evil and evil good. They're clever and powerful and they're popular And they make fun of Christians and Christianity. And some of you here today may have experienced that yourself. And they attack Christians by saying that Christians are immoral for their stands on God's word. And Christians are people haters and lawbreakers even. And so suddenly Christians lose their jobs and reputations and even their freedom of speech because of the scoffers. That's not the happy man. He will not sit in that seat. Now, if you're looking carefully at God's word here, you'll see the development of sin and spiritual failure. There's walking, then standing, then sitting. You walk. At first, you you listen to and you toy with sinful ideas. It might not be visible to others at this point, but soon you stand You're standing in the habit of sin. Suddenly it's become a lifestyle. Now it's visible to people. And finally you sit. Now you're stuck. You are rooted. You're addicted. It's very difficult to shift. And then you begin to teach others your ways, as Romans 1 says, even approving of those who practice them. Look also at how sin is like creeping paralysis. From walking to standing to sitting, from motion to motionlessness, crippled by the effects. See, see, sin never, ever ends well. It never ends in pleasure, though it promises much for the moment. The poison begins to creep through the soul as soon as it enters, like creeping paralysis, from walking to standing to sitting. So the question is, who and what influences you? Who and what influences you? Now, most of you are 
I think, mixing in the world during the week. And don't get me wrong, we are not called to withdraw from the world and live like monks at the top of a mountain. And you can get to plenty of mountains quickly here where we live, but you're not called to withdraw. No, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus says to be salt and light, not to be influenced by it, but to influence it instead. Remember this, when Jesus touched the leper, the leper did not infect Jesus. Jesus cleansed the leper. So avoid intimacy with worldly influences. Remember the proverb, whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You will be harmed, not happy, if you walk with the world. See, this psalm is very clear. There is a difference between saints and sinners, between holiness and wickedness, between the righteous and the ungodly. There is a clear line, and you are in one camp or the other. No middle ground. There is an in and an out. Don't forget that, because eternity is going to bear witness to it. That's why when we enter the book of Psalms, God puts this no at the entrance. The happy man who will praise me and enter my courtyards will separate himself from the influence of the world. Otherwise, he can't come in. Life under the sun is vanity. And if you look for lasting happiness on a horizontal level only, unconnected to God and his gifts, you will be unhappy and unfulfilled. Because, friends, everything here, it's passing away. It's passing away. What does the Apostle John say in 1 John? Do not love the world or the things in the world. And then a few verses later, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So friends, we need solid joys, joys that will last, joys that are as big as the God who gives them. And it's only when we recognize or discover by experience the temporary nature and emptiness of things in this world that we begin to look for our joy and happiness in another world. Only then can we be truly happy in this world. We can enjoy things in this world because we see them as temporal gifts from God. The result is thanksgiving to God, realizing they are not God. And that's what the blessed or happy man does. He doesn't seek his satisfaction in the world, but he seeks it in the word of God. We see the ingredients for true happiness, the marks of the happy man. One in his separation, that's the first mark. And the second is in his devotion. We've had the negative, now we have the positive. His devotion. Look there in verse 2. Here's the contrast. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the next mark of the truly happy man is what he devotes himself to. Only to say no might moderate a person's behavior to some degree, But it will only do that. It won't give them happiness in God. But the blessed man separates from ungodly instruction and devotes himself to God's instruction, to the Torah, but to all of Scripture. 
And notice he delights in the law of the Lord. He, he loves it. Here is his happiness. See, when God's revelation breaks through in your life, it begins to taste like pleasure. And you begin to delight in it. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 18 years old. I got saved and I couldn't wait to get to my, into my bedroom at night and, and read God's word to hear from God because it had come alive to me and I began to delight in it. God must affect your emotions, surely. Surely God must affect your emotions. He's not just a set of propositions. He's a person, the greatest person in the universe. It's not enough to know the word of God. We must love the God of the word. We must love the God of the word. We must say, what a, what a powerful, righteous, holy God. What a sinner I am, how I deserve hell. How merciful he is that his own son would come and die for my sins, that I might be forgiven and be saved. And to delight in the word of God also means to recognize the authority of the word of God and to submit to it. See, the devil knows the word better than any of us, but he doesn't submit to its authority because he doesn't love it. So just take a moment now, right now, to reflect here. You might be growing in your Bible knowledge, but are you growing in your Bible obedience? You might be growing in your Bible knowledge, but are you growing in your Bible obedience? Right now, Think, how has last week's sermon changed me in a practical way this week, even in a small way? Think of the, the word of God preached to you last Sunday, and then how has that sermon changed my life this week? It, is there evidence? Or do you just like to talk Bible and look clever? Because you go to a church where they preach the word. Or do you say, well, this Christian life, it's all of grace. I, I don't need to obey God's law. Well, no, you don't. Not for your justification, you don't. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, the Bible says, Romans 10. I fulfill the law for you, Jesus says, but I don't come to abolish it. And so we look to Christ and not the law for our justification, but in Christ, we are now driven back to the moral law to train us in godliness as we seek to obey now by faith. See, antinomianism, I don't know if you've ever heard that word, antinomianism, anti-law, is actually anti-Psalm 1 and anti-Bible. And it is problematic in the church today. It results in lack of discipline and ungodliness in the church. People say it's all of grace and they carry on sinning. It's just something to be aware of, even as we've got to urge one another on to become students of the word. Think of it like this. If Jesus saves you by grace and you love his word, why would you not want to obey the Ten Commandments? Jesus did. His delight was in obeying the law of the Lord. And because he's done it perfectly for you and me and credited that to your account, now you're free to obey by faith, knowing that Christ did it perfectly for you. Also, notice here that the happy man's devotion manifests itself in habitual meditation. 
On his law, he meditates day and night. And if your biblical antenna are up, you'll be already thinking of God's instruction to Moses' successor Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. See the phrase there. So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. He says, meditate on my word. The word for meditate means to chew over or to mutter. To mutter. So, so muttering the scripture was a common practice in the ancient world. Reading it, walking around, muttering. I, I, I recommend this to you, this muttering of the scripture. Now, you've got to be careful where you do it. I want you to be doing it on the sea train, going into work in the morning. But I do recommend it. This is true meditation. And just by way of practical application, you know what it's like when you sit down to read the word of God sometimes. Your eyes start glazing. You start getting tired. If you stand up, walk around, and start reading the word out loud, start muttering it, it keeps you actually awake. But it was the common practice True meditation, muttering the scriptures, and as you do, setting them in your mind. The verse, the order, the meaning, the application. And so you hide the word in your heart. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119, verse 11? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So young men in here, I see we've got a few young men. Maybe a few older men who are trying to get into that category still. Young men in here, answer me this question. How will a young man keep his way pure? If you know the Psalms, you should be able to finish that. By guarding it according to your word, according to God's word. Psalm 119.9. See, don't meditate on your iPhone or pornography or PlayStation, meditate on God's word. Let it sink into your mind. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Mutter God's word. Don't grumble against God's word. And make it a regular habit. Oh, that's not cool, someone might say. Some young man might say that. Well, no. What's not cool is a generation of directionless, lightweight, insecure young men who don't fear the Lord. That's what's not cool in our generation. And it's the same for young women. It's the same for all of us. What do you meditate on most? What is on your lips most? What are you muttering about? That will tell you a lot about your state of happiness in the Lord. Now, what to do if you're not doing this meditation, if you're not muttering? Well, get started today. Get started today and be regular. Speak to your pastor about how you could, he can help you with a, with a program of, of, of Bible reading and meditation. Get together with an older man or older woman in here to kickstart your meditation on the law of the Lord. And, and get muttering. That's a takeaway there. Get muttering. See, see, when the word of God breaks into your life, and, and it might be doing that for the first time right now for some of you or in a new and fresh way for some of you. When that happens, you become a Christian. God takes the story of your life and puts it into the big story of what he's doing in history. That's what he does. And suddenly, you see, you have purpose. You have a history. 
You have an identity and you have security. And all of these things can never be taken away. And all of these things are the things that you're searching for to make you happy. History and identity and security. It's all the things that the world is searching for to make them happy. But take everything in this life from the Christian, and the Christian has security because he has God. And so he delights in the law of the Lord, which makes him wise for salvation. And he boasts of the pleasures of the gospel. Let the world see your pleasure. Let the world see your pleasure. You need to be happy Christians, joyful Christians. We might disagree with non-Christian acquaintances, but let them see that we're happy in what we agree with and not grumpy, angry Christians. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him, enjoy him, enjoy him forever. It's the catechism, isn't it? Look at this blessed man. He delights in God's word. You're meant to enjoy God. What does the psalmist say at the end of Psalm 16? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. At the right hand of God are pleasures evermore. But what is at the right hand of God? Or should I say, whom? Well, it's Jesus Christ, you see. He is our lasting pleasure. Stephen is our eyewitness where he saw him. Do you remember when Stephen was getting stoned? First Christian martyr, Acts 7. And he looks up and he's given a vision into heaven of Jesus Christ. Where's he standing? At the right hand of God. Stephen's our eyewitness to this. Paul the apostle confirms God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. And so he directs us in Colossians 3, which was the scripture reading today. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's there right now. Where? Seated at the right hand of God. And the psalmist in Psalm 110 verse 1 guarantees Jesus' final rule and victory when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all enemies under your feet. See, Jesus is at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore because in Jesus is invested the quality of happiness because of who he is. You just want to be happy? Then reach out to Jesus Christ in faith. Pleasures from God last because he packs them up for you in his son and and, and gifts them to you. Imagine that. It's like a gift. And because it's God who packs the pleasures, you know that the pleasures will last. They're pleasures forevermore. And they're portable pleasures with you in Christ always at all times in all circumstances. So the happy man Marks of the happy man. The happy man is known for one, his separation from the influence of sinners. And two, his devotion to the word of God. So we've been told what not to do. Then the psalmist contrasts it with what to do. And then like any good teacher, the psalmist gives us an illustration. And if you've done any kind of teaching or parenting, don't do that. Do that. Now let me give you an example. Okay? So what the psalmist is doing here. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an illustration here. This is the third mark of happiness. It's his irrigation and his fruition. More shun words for you. 
to remember. Irrigation and fruition. Look at the illustration there in the middle part of the psalm. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He is like a tree. First notice, he is planted. It is done to him. You are not born a Christian. God chooses to make you a Christian. You are planted. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Put from here to there. You are not a Christian by the family you were born into or by going to church or doing good things. God saves you by transplanting you. The blessed man, the happy man is planted. It's done to him. The tree doesn't plant itself. Someone else plants it, which means the tree is also owned by someone else. Chosen, taken from one place and secured in another and then sustained by someone else. Like the Christian, owned by and cared for his or her heavenly father, bought by the price of Christ's own blood. When God picks you up and plants you, you realize he created this world and me and he has his eye on me. And now I know this world is going somewhere. Now I'm going somewhere. I belong. I have purpose. I have security in his love and care for me. You're planted now. You're rooted now in his unchangeable love. A child of the Father, what is your security? Where is your identity? You can never feel secure if you don't have God. Because everything you belong to will last a while, but it will be gone. How can you have happiness in a world like that? You are fooling yourself. Everything in your life is threatened. Not the happy man. He's planted. Is that you today? Are you planted? He's planted. And he's planted where? He's planted by streams of water. The idea here is of artificial canals that they used to have. Artificial canals of water that irrigated the trees alongside them. And the point is this. We need supernatural, not natural irrigation. Irrigation by the Holy Spirit through his word. And you know the spiritually minded person, don't you? Is the one who has this internal spring of spiritual life. Their pattern of thoughts of God are regular. They are repentant when they sin. And this inward principle of spiritual irrigation means what? It means fruition. The happy man is irrigated, so he's fruitful. And what is fruit? Well, well fruit, as we see it there on the trees now and in the stores. And I love the BC cherries at the moment. I don't know if you're eating them. They are fantastic. This fruit is beautiful and it's visible. There is visible fruit of Christ-likeness, beautiful fruit of Christ-likeness in the Christian's life. And others will see it. It's why it's good to come together in community, in church. Because you're trundling along in the week and you think you've had a terrible week and you've stumbled and got up and you keep, you keep believing and you've turned up today and you're speaking with other Christians and they say, I tell you what, I've really seen you grow in the last six months. 
Others are seeing growth in you that maybe you don't see yourself. It's, it's visible to others. The fruit, fruit also tastes sweet to others. So a tree doesn't produce fruit and then eat the fruit itself. It's for others to pick and for others to eat of. And so others see that Christ-like fruit in you and they benefit from it. Do you taste sweet to others because your fruit serves the good of others? Christ-like love, joy, patience, peace, kindness. You know the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And this fruit, is, it says, there is yielded in its season. That is to say, it is mature. It is timely. The mature Christian, they, they have a sense of appropriateness. I think that's a, a word we need to re- recover. Appropriateness. They're not loud or rude. They have things like manners. Christian manners that proceed from the fruit of humility that will consider another more significant than oneself. See, sometimes we make the excuse for people, well, they're just socially awkward, when actually they lack manners because they're too self-absorbed to consider what might be appropriate behavior in a given situation. But the Christian should be growing in the fruit of Christian manners so that he or she might be able to mix appropriately in different company and like Jesus, walk with kings or commoners with ease for the sake of the gospel. Or say with the Apostle Paul, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And so the fruit of the happy man is also seasonal because he continues to produce fruit in different seasons of life. So consider your season of life now. And consider, how can I be fruitful accordingly? And there are freedoms and responsibilities that you have as a Christian that differ slightly when you are young, so when you're older, when you're single, to when you're married, kids, no kids, and so on. So consider, what's my season? And how can I be best used for, for kingdom purposes? And then there's this little phrase there, and his leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. He perseveres. The life in him is eternal life. There's a green leaf there. And so he is evergreen. You know, the prophet Jeremiah uses this image in Jeremiah 17, verse 8. He says, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. So through trials and suffering, he still grows. The leaf is evergreen. You know, there are, I'm no expert in farming or plants or fruit trees or anything, but they tell me that there are some Trees that have great fruit and and poor leaves, and some that have great leaves and poor fruit. But you see the picture here of the happy man, the blessed man, is of a tree that has great fruit seasonally and an evergreen leaf. He perseveres, always producing fruit. And even when that heat comes from the outside, even when there's suffering, even when there's drought, is evergreen. So here is the picture of the happy man, rooted, secure, solid, fruitful, mature, persevering. In contrast, look at the wicked man. There it is, the contrast there. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. 
30 words to describe the blessed man in English, 14 words to describe the wicked man. Man, He has no substance, no security, no solidity, no fruit. He, it's as if the, the psalmist just pop, you know those people that can just pop you, pop your bubble with one word. You know those people that can do that. It's as if the psalmist just pops the bubble of the world's pride and says, oh him, not so, blown away, <laughs> chaff. No maturity, no longevity. All his boasting, his power, his cleverness, his influence, his fame in this life, he is blown away like chaff. And that's why it says in the next verse, he will not stand in the judgment because he cannot stand in the judgment. He has no substance. He will not be able to carry his cause before God. He will not stand, it says, in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 5. On the day of judgment, the unbeliever will not stand with the Christian congregation because he has not stood with the Christian congregation here in this life now. And you see it with many people that cannot stand the word of God. They sit and wriggle under the word of God and they want to get out from under the word of God and away from the church. They cannot stand it. So they won't stand in the judgment. And so it says at the end of this psalm, the way of the wicked will perish, not might, will perish. Hell is as definite as heaven. The separation now points to a final separation to come. And there will be no second chances. They can't enter the happiness of God in the worship of God in heaven. They have no substance. They have no solid joy. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis uh, sees everything in heaven, he, he paints this picture as only, only Lewis can with a, a sanctified imagination. And he, he, he talks of heaven. And he talks of this scene of these, um, these ghost-like figures of unbelievers having this visitation uh, to heaven. And as they visit heaven, uh, C.S. Lewis describes the grass and rocks and trees and water. And, and here's the quote, as much solider than things in our country. And Pastor Randy Alcorn comments on this uh, comment from C.S. Lewis. He says, grass is sharp and hard. And then he speaks about these ghost-like figures that are visiting heaven. To fit into heaven, they must become not less solid, but more. They must move from being phantoms to having weight and substance. They cannot live there and neither will they want to. You see, the unbeliever doesn't have the fruit of Christian substance and is not standing on the substance of Jesus Christ. And so they cannot enter heaven and stand in heaven. They will cut their feet on the grass of heaven. In Psalm 1, you see, right at the end here, there is now a reversal the happy, righteous man is described by lots of words 
and the wicked man by just a few words in the tree illustration that I pointed out. But now it's reversed in the description of his destination. And that's the fourth mark of happiness. One, his separation. Two, his devotion. Three, his irrigation and fruition. And four, his destination. And it's there in the verse just before the end of the psalm. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Simply, the Lord knows the righteous. And that should be enough, friends, to make you happy. The Lord knows the righteous. Not even primarily that you know him, though we must strive to know the Lord, but that he knows you, that he cares for you, that Jesus died for you, that your name is on his heart. See, if I, if I knock at the door of Buckingham Palace next time I'm back in England and I say, I know the Queen, I'm not getting in. But if the Queen is walking by or riding by on her horse and she looks over and says, oh, I know Gavin, I'm getting in the palace. That he knows you is enough. And to those who have rejected God or faked Christianity, even hovering around the visible church in this life, what did Jesus say in Matthew 7? What will he say? I never knew you. Prideful, powerful mockers will not stand. They will melt away under God's judgment. But to you, to you, the weakest believer in here today, the one with the simplest faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are like the blessed man, he will say to you, I know you, my child. You trusted me to the end. You stumbled and you picked yourself up by God's grace, by my grace, and you walked. Enter now into the joy of your master. God knows the righteous. But who are the righteous? The righteous are those who trust in the Lord for forgiveness of sin and his constant care. None of us is truly righteous in and of ourselves. They're those who trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was a good Jew. Jesus would have known this psalm, you know, from boyhood. He would have sung this psalm, prayed this psalm. But here's the irony, friends, as I finish. Jesus was the only truly blessed man, truly happy, supremely happy in the Trinity from eternity, beloved of the Father from eternity, and the only truly righteous man who ever lived. And as he sang and prayed this psalm, and as he grew in wisdom from boy to man, he would have seen himself as the fulfillment of this psalm, so that Peter would eventually write, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And to see God face to face in heaven, that is what the theologian Jonathan Edwards called happifying. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for the power of your word to point us away from sin and to salvation in Jesus Christ, even delighting in that word that brings salvation and guides us in the sanctification. 
Thank you for the great hope of heaven that all those who are counted righteous in Jesus Christ can have. And I pray now that you would increase our desire for your word and for holiness and to avoid the influence of the world and to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake and to spread the good news of salvation and true happiness that can only be found in Jesus Christ and his gospel to this world around. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.